0: If you find yourself in the graces of God, it's because he's chosen you. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got, let's mix it up, Tracy. Morning. Karen. Yes. Hey, hi. Hey. And and we've got Eric. Good morning. Glad to have everybody here. Glad to be back recording again. I guess it's only been a week. I make that sound like we've been gone for a long time. We haven't. <laughs> we've been here. Hopefully, you've been here too, listening. I made kind of a cool purchase this week, you guys. I say it's cool. I think it's cool, and I think it might help me out with the uh, with the podcast here. I got myself a chronological study Bible. Ooh. We, yeah. I uh, I've always liked to study Bibles for notes and stuff, so I'm just sharing this for our listeners' purposes. I got an alert from uh, Bible Gateway the other day, and they had this thing on sale. They said it was on sale. Um, <laughs> they they were the hard the hardcover like thirty bucks normally like sixty. I don't know. It was like supposed to be this great amazing sale. I'm like, oh cool. I think I'll I'll look into that. Well, I go there and I try to buy it, and they're like, oh we're all sold out. Would you like to know when we're gonna have it again? Yes, I would, but then I thought, you know what? I bet Amazon might have this thing And I was right, they had the exact same one Their regular price was uh, Bible Gateway's sale price And I bought the hardcover version Because it's a little less expensive And uh, it works just fine on my desk But it is the New King James Chronological Study Bible uh, The Thomas Nelson, made by Thomas Nelson And it looks to be pretty cool It's got, uh, it's got, it's got pictures <laughs> Ooh! yeah that's good extra for me
1: fancy.
0: yeah extra fancy it's got pictures it's got notes in it it's laid out it the, the layout is a little different than what we're following and so for the sake for our purposes i'm going to stick with with the uh uh with the plan that we've been following but um it is kind of cool where it's just kind of laid out it's got a timeline across the pages on top so you can kind of get an idea of when things are happening like it tells me that what we are studying this week was somewhere in the range of 1200 to 930 BC and uh I don't know that's I'm just pretty,
1: That's pretty big range for something that took 20 years.
0: Well, I know. Yeah. I I suppose that you know we don't know exactly when things happened but um But anyway, if our listeners are interested in looking into that themselves it's a pretty cool, it's pretty cool, pretty cool deal. And uh, I picked New King James just because that's what I've been reading lately. But yeah, it's the Thomas Nelson Chronological Study Bible. And it was like thirty bucks for the hardcover, so not a not a huge, not a huge investment. But um, hopefully, it'll be a, a worthwhile one. I haven't looked in it, in it a whole lot yet, but um, I just thought that was kind of cool. Thought people might it be is. interested. Yeah. Well, let's get into our discussion today. Last week we were talking all about the building of the temple. Solomon had taken on the task of building the temple after David had wanted to but wasn't allowed to, and and all kinds of resources had been set up, ready to go, and uh, bricks and such were cut at a quarry in. Well, it wasn't there. I remember it wasn't there because there was very specific. It was keeping the area. Um, oh, what's the word I want to use?
2: Sacred. Quiet, Sacred,
0: quiet. quiet, yeah, reverent, reverent, yeah. yeah, so, but anyway, it took seven years to build this temple, which sounded like a long time at first when I was thinking about that, but then I, you know, you got looking into what exactly went into building this thing, and they're, they're cutting huge stones from, by hand, and they're, they're overlaying everything with, it seems like they're plating everything with gold, we discussed whether or not it was gold leaf or, or gold uh, plate, and uh, the process is all involved with that. So seven years, probably, that, that really, in retrospect, doesn't sound like that long of a time for everything that went, involved, went into that.
2: Right. And for listeners who, who are just joining us, part of the reason when we say that this was done, you know, reverently, one of the reasons maybe why this was just a little bit extra different than a typical place is they made no noise uh-huh. uh, as they were building it. They didn't have any hammers or chisels and I'm not sure if saws were specified, but basically everything was fit elsewhere and then just basically slid together on location so that during the building, the site would be relatively silent. Um, There's no mandate as to why that needed to be done that I can remember, but that's just how they did it. So this was a a very unique process in building. And this had started, we, we did study that the saving up for this and the setting aside of gifts began back when Saul became king, mm-hmm. way back then. And so Saul had been collecting things and, um, uh, you know, offerings. And David had been collecting offerings. And now Solomon is pulling things together. So this has been going on a long time. It's just seven years to put it together, but it had been, well, what three succession of of uh, um, administrations? I guess would call it. Working towards this, and David reigned 40 years. So, you figure they started collecting for this stuff before David was king. So, they must have been working on the materials for this for well over 50 years. Yeah, it was quite the process. We're
0: told we get into 1 Kings chapter 7, and it starts talking about other buildings that Solomon also built. And it sounds like, all in all, like maybe there was a 20 year process here of building, which I it kind of speaks to. Why Solomon was allowed to do this instead of David, because in order to have this kind of a of a building boom, you can't be at war all the time. Um, you need some time. Yeah, you need time. And especially building the way that they were building.
1: Well, that but, was just the temple, and it said that the temple took seven years.
0: Yeah, the temple took seven years, but all these other buildings... It seems like Temple and all these other buildings Was uh, a total of 20 Because was, we're told it yeah. took 13 years To build his own house So the king's house, 13 years And I, boy <laughs> I'd like to know I'd like to know what went into that thing uh, We don't give, get a whole lot of uh, Of, of, uh, of uh, Details On what well, it went he, into it
1: He built his and his first wife's Like mm-hmm. the Egyptian princess Yep. That he married, like he built it, he built a, a palace the same as his for her as well, it said.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. You know, and that wonder too, like I, I think I said this last week, you know, I'm wondering too, if you bring in all those people to do the task that, you know, you don't have to build like supportive structures to house all them too. Like the Egyptians did that basically had a, like a worker city around what they were building.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: You know, I'm sure you had to bring in tons of people that were, you know, the travelers, that were the hard laborers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm right. sure it took, took a mass and a multitude to do. Mm-hmm.
1: What was it, like 10,000 people a month or something like that came in and took their turn working for a month and the nun went home or something like that? It was some crazy number.
0: It yeah. was a lot, yeah. It was a lot, yeah, and they were doing it in shifts and taking, they yeah. get a little time off and then they'd go back to work. So there was his house, took 13 years. There was talk about this house of the forest of Lebanon. I have no idea what that was all about, but that thing was quite big itself. It was about 100 feet long, 75 feet wide, and a little over 26 feet tall, built with cedar panels. It was, you know, specified out here, There was built with cedar panels and windows with beveled frames. So, I mean, for that to get pointed out tells me that, This was considered a pretty special thing to have a window with cedar or a a building, I can speak, with uh, cedar panels and windows, specifically with these beveled frames. Uh, There was talk about something called the Hall of Pillars, which was about 50 feet long, 30 feet wide. It says it had a portico with pillars. Again, I don't know what that was used for. Uh, Talk about a Hall of Judgment. And then it was also told we were told that in Solomon's house was another court like the Hall of Judgment. That that kind of tells you what that was all about, where it sounds like probably this is where Solomon would go to well, hold court. I would imagine this is probably be the type of place where, like we talked about last week, where the two women came and had the dispute over whose whose baby, uh, who was going to get the baby that was left of the two of them. That would probably be where that kind of thing would take place. I'm guessing. Yeah, and then we're told about this other house made uh, for Pharaoh's daughter. Now it was interesting as you look into Pharaoh's daughter's house. Uh, there was a n- little note in the bat- in the part of the chronicles section that we were reading of why uh, Pharaoh's daughter lived in a different house. So yeah, notice that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and let's see. I'm just gonna, it's, I wrote down that Pharaoh's daughter didn't live in the king's house because of the proximity to the ark. And the area where the ark is is considered holy. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting glimpse into this marriage that Solomon had with this Pharaoh's daughter. Now, am I correct? She was his first wife.
1: I thought so. First one I remember.
0: First first
2: read about anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the only one we've read about so far. Right. But we've found that that also we'd be reading along about King David and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, and there were all these children and we're like, Whoa, where did they come from? Like, Oh, those are the other wives we haven't mentioned. So mm-hmm. I right. wouldn't, I would not assume that this was necessarily like chronologically the first one. It's just the first one we got wind of.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So she gets her own house and that's an interesting concept of marriage too, where you don't even live in the same house, more of a, I don't know, almost more of a, I mean, we talked about how it was probably a political alliance
1: yeah,
0: thing at yes, one point, um, and almost more of an economical alliance than, you know, I mean, today when we think of marriage, we think, you know, you got to fall in love with somebody, you know, you're going to date for a while, you're going to get to know each other, uh, you're going to, you know, this is going to be somebody you want to live with for the rest of your life. Well, it sounds like, it sounds to me sort of like Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter and then uh, let's just put her over here. We don't, yeah. have, You know, interesting to you know have be married to someone who you have a certain dedication to, but who you really aren't sharing your life with. Right. Yeah. A,
2: different world.
1: Hmm. Well, I would guess that if you get into the monarchies of today, you would find elements of that same thing still going on. Like marriage just isn't quite the same thing when you have that much of a public-facing
2: position. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I I mean, and, and that's I mean, that's for sure a thing that that, that went into the future. And uh, Tracy, you're going to have to help me out here medically. There was a family in Europe who intermarried all over and they shared a uh, they they were, they were missing a blood clotting factor. That's uh
1: huh.
2: Oh, sputum and the the Russians were huge on that
1: H- hemophilia.
2: Yes. Uh-huh. And they spread that because of their marriage all through the European royalty because they intermarried all over the place. And it's just kind of an interesting thing. It's it's kind of like one of those ways you can trace that. It's like, "Oh, yeah." So, yes, this is this is this happened before and it happened again and so and this is only this is what the English teachers would call foreshadowing. Right? <laughs> As we're talking about Solomon here. So, anyways, yeah so a lot of building in um and by the way these chapters go in parallel so first kings 7 is pretty much the carbon copy of second chronicles 4 right. or the other way around so if our listeners are wondering it's basically the same thing it is so much the same thing we were talking before we started doing the the, uh, the live podcast here is that um we weren't sure. Did we read that again already? Or did I? Is that exactly the same? Or am I missing something? Did I? Am I rereading? what? So yeah, it's first Second Chronicles four and First Kings seven, pretty much the same thing. And as we skip ahead, we have First Kings eight one through twenty one, which is essentially the same thing as Second Chronicles five, mm-hmm. and Second Chronicles six one through eleven. <clears throat> so those those two things overlap almost perfectly.
0: Mm-hmm. You know One thing that I just really wanted to talk about Well, yeah, one thing I really kind of wanted to mention here About Pharaoh's daughter's house He was talking about how the how big these stones were They were They said 10 by 8 cubits Or 10, how do they put it? 10, 10 cubit square and 8 cubit square So different sizes That's 15 feet by 12 feet square I guess cubes of stone, can you imagine trying to transport something like that? When we oh, were my talking? goodness,
2: you know, because no, those like weren't coming stuff.
0: from local. What was that, I mean, Eric?
2: Said so that's like the pyramids stuff, and they yep. and the pyramids predated this, so mm-hmm. people had figured this out. And to my knowledge, and Tracy's more of an Egyptologist than the rest of us put together. do they even ever <laughs> figure out how they fi-
3: how they moved no. that stuff? Tracy? I was, I was just going to jump in there and say, you know what, that is still a raging source of debate on you know what, did they uh, divert water from the Nile to to float these things? Did they you know, just use raw manpower to to push them, you know, pull them across the the desert and where they're quarrying them? So, nobody knows at this point.
2: So, you've ruled out aliens, right?
3: I've ruled out aliens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't mention that one.
0: Oh, that's funny. That's funny. I just did a sermon last week about conspiracy theories. And that was one I was going to, I thought I considered talking about is that the pyramid being built by aliens. I didn't go that way though, <laughs> but <laughs> that's just kind of funny.
2: Yeah. Basically this, this is, and this is an important point is that we tend to look back in history and think of the people who preceded us as not being quite as clever as we are today. And that isn't, that is a, um, I think an inappropriate, compliment to ourselves because it's not <laughs> true just like tracy <laughs> said they were actually doing this stuff not theory they actually did it and we can't even reverse engineer how they did it yep. yeah with computers and they didn't have it right, right. At, at so, so mm-hmm. what they were doing was really impressive i noticed the size of the stones there too matt these are mm-hmm. and when you start talking about stones that size i've done some landscaping stuff and you can buy boulders here for landscaping and said, mm-hmm. like, Well, we can get you a two-ton boulder for your yard. I'm like, oh, that must be pretty big. And then you see it, and you're like, oh, that could like fit in the back of my pickup truck. No, it would crush my truck, mm-hmm. it's not two tons. A two-ton rock is really not very big. Yeah. Um, and you start looking at the measurements of these rocks, and they're wow. I mean, this yeah. was this was some serious stuff.
0: Yeah, it's quite a thing to put, I mean, to just put something that big on a truck or a or a train car or something like that these days this would be a huge feat to do this so there's some interesting stuff going on there um oh a guy named Hiram is mentioned specifically about being a bronze worker and he must have really been something to be get named specifically or so prominently here there's lots of talk about stuff that was built for the temple some bronze pillars uh, and the way they were the way they were shaped two pillars put out front one was called Jacquin, and the other one was called Boaz. Jachin means he shall establish and Boaz means it is strength. So those were put out front. Uh, there was a talk about, this is a little confusing to me at first, it was called the sea in the pillar. Oh,
1: that's huge.
0: Yeah. So it's this this C and I'm gonna share if I if you haven't seen it already by the time this is posted because I wanna post a video of of a concept of what things looked like inside but this they call it the c and the oxen and this thing was was big so it said it was a ten cubit diameter, so that's gonna be. Oh, what did I come up with on that? On that. This like, would be roughly uh 15 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Something along those lines. I got my math wrong here. I know. So that's why I'm not saying that. But um, so this thing is it's big. It's like a it's like a big bowl of water, basically. Yeah. Um and and so calling I could see why they'd call it a sea. It's just this huge thing of water that they have in there. And this is for the priests for washing. And I'm thinking something that big. What extent were these guys going to in their washing? I mean, because we talk about, you know, ritual washing later with Jesus and, you know, how they would how they would ritually wash before they would eat and things like this. And it would be basically like, you know, rubbing a little water on your hands. Something this big, almost that almost says to me that there was more than just a little hand washing happening.
2: Well, they wanted to do everything grand. And so, I think he just wanted this to be to scale because the 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 building itself was so big. If you did a something, you know, three feet across, it would look like a bird bath. And so yeah. I think he just wanted to. Everything had to be big. Yeah. And well,
0: it was it was big. It held twelve thousand gallons of water.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, so, it... and we find later here during the dedication that even the the giant altar, we'll get to that, and this wasn't enough, because they sacrificed so much, they had to put up kind of some temporary structures Mm -hmm. to to handle all of this stuff. For the day-to-day, this was a a very large and significant part of their worship, because the temple, and this is, I guess, worth pointing out here, is that we have a structure of the temple that in most places, doesn't change throughout the Bible. You have some sort of outer uh, boundary to this thing, and then you get in, and correct me where I'm wrong here, guys, but I think first comes the um, laver or the sea or the, the basin for washing. Then comes the large altar of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Then comes the, the tabernacle temple itself. Tabernacle was um, uh, synonymous with the word tent or dwelling place. So it could mean a lot of different things. So then you've got the actual structure, whether it's the tent in the desert, or it's Solomon's temple, or it's the temple, the rebuilt temple, or it's Herod's temple. And I just want to throw this out there for a little bit of um, interesting stuff, is that the temple, remember, flashback to Moses, When God says, here's how I want you to build the tabernacle, he told Moses, this is, I want you to build this after the pattern of the temple in heaven. So this is important to keep in mind because we see this again in the book of Revelation. And we see Jesus as the priest. And we see the same, we see the same furniture. So this is, this goes from, from Genesis to Revelation. And we're just kind of in the middle here. Because we have the building, then we have inside the building the showbread, we've got lamps. It's but not by accident that Jesus is walking among the lamps of the churches in Revelation as we start. And then we have the prayers of the saints going up from the altar of incense. And there's an altar of incense in, in, the, in the tent tabernacle, and there's an altar of incense here. And then there's the most holy place, and then there's the ark within the most holy place, which on the ark... As you say, in the ark, and it's specified here, is the commandments of God, but above the commandments of God is the mercy seat. And this stuff, this, this just goes from the pattern that Moses is shown to the desert to Solomon, to the rebuilt thing in Ezra and Nehemiah, to Herod's temple, the structure is the same, to revelation. So as we're looking at this, it takes slightly different measurements. In the sense of like how big was the bronze sea you know versus the one in the desert but the function and the symbology of this stuff is a thread that runs beginning to end in the Bible
0: it, it was it was quite the structure it was pretty amazing to see and so when I when I share that video I'll give you some kind of a concept of of what we've been talking about through all this and it's uh yeah it really is interesting you've got this giant labor or the sea next to a great big altar for sacrifices and and yeah all these other things so there's all these furnishings uh we're told ta- we're told about some carts that hold some other labors that were the labors these other labors were specifically for washing the offerings so you had different places to wash you had the priests wash in one place offerings got washed in another place all this stuff though all this stuff cuz we're told we're told about how Hiram or Huram depending on which uh depending on which book you're reading there
2: yeah, chronicles or
0: kings yeah <laughs> same 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 guy just for some reason somebody some people call him huram and others call him hiram but he's making all of this stuff out of solid brass so this this giant uh this giant c is solid brass and that was like four inches thick uh mm. it was at a hand breadth so i mean i'm looking at my hand and going i don't know four and roughly i got kind of big hands but um You know, that's a... I mean, that's solid brass. That is... That's going to be super heavy, super thick. I can't... I have no idea how you would work something like that. Um, But he's making shovels, bowls, pillars, all kinds of stuff, all made out of brass. And we're told it's so much... Or bronze or brass, however you want to put it. I think it's bronze, I guess. So much bronze that Solomon didn't even bother to weigh it. It was just so much... It's like, why bother? It's kind of amazing. First uh, Kings chapter 8, the Ark is finally brought into the temple. Now, the Ark has been... It's kind of been on hiatus for a long time, it seems to me. Because if you remember, the, the Philistines had it for a while. They stuck it on a cart and sent it back with some cows. That was an interesting story. But it sounds like that it seems to me as if... As if the Ark never quite got put back in the temple... I think last week we were talking about how it seemed like the Ark was in one place and the tabernacle was in another place. Fairly close, so why didn't they bring them together? But now it's finally being brought up to the temple. And uh, the elders and heads of the tribes are all assembled. And it says the Ark is brought up, how did they put it? It said from the city of David, and it calls it Zion. And I looked at the map, and it shows Zion, and I don't know if it's talking about the city i don't know if it's talking about the hill it's on mount zion you know but it's right there by jerusalem but now i had some question about this city of david because it seems like sometimes city of david is referred to as jerusalem but we're told later that jesus is born in the city of david which is bethlehem am i am where's my disconnect with that
2: do you guys know is it both yeah because he was. I mean, what well, kind of one was where he was? And remember, is that Jerusalem hadn't been taken over by? I mean, this is the, it, it, it's 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 kind of crazy. We think about well, Jerusalem, duh, it's the capital of, of uh, the Israelite, but that didn't happen until David took over. Because remember, the uh, the citizens of Jabez they they held Jerusalem even in the middle of Israel. And it wasn't until David's reign that they took over that city, and it became part of Israel. That was during David's reign, and so David kind of came from uh, Bethlehem, but then he made Jerusalem his city and the national capital. So, the answer is, I think, both. Both.
0: Well, yeah, it must be. I mean, because they're like I said, they're that you hear them both referred to that way. So all this stuff gets brought there, though. Uh, The the ark, the tabernacle gets brought, all the furnishings, all the stuff that they've been carrying around, that they were carrying around in the wilderness for a long time, decades, at least, well, 40 years, right? And then now it's been, seems like it's just been sort of floating around a bit. They didn't really quite have a home for any of it, but uh, now it's all being brought to this, to the new temple. And in the process of this, it says there were sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for their multitude, were being sacrificed. <laughs> when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, was this necessary? Was this... Because we're not given any indication that God asked them to do this kind of sacrificing for this. Right. Was this just on their own accord, thinking that this was something good to do? I don't know. It just seemed... It seemed it seemed unnecessary to my ears, to my
3: eyes, when I'm reading it. It seemed if kind of have, excessive. If, if we think back during the, to the Exodus... Remember we were saying that we thought that the, you know, the sacrifice were, were always flowing. It was, you know, something that was always going on. So I'm wondering if they just kind of revamped that and got that up and going again, because, you know, we had mentioned that there was an awful lot of sacrificing and it'd probably be a messy place at some point with yeah. all the blood flowing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I thought the same thing reading this. Um, but there was they, they referred to some of the offerings as fellowship offerings.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it
1: made me think that part of it was because the ceremony was two weeks long and there were all these people to feed.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. That
1: maybe this was, I mean, I don't mean to sound sacrilegious, but maybe this whole thing was part barbecue?
2: No, I think Karen's right. I think you're absolutely yeah. right.
1: Yeah. And but but I did think the exact same thing. And I kept thinking I kept thinking of the passage in Micah six where it says, you know, what shall I bring when I come bow bow down before the Lord? Does he want rivers of oil? Does he want sacrifices? Does he want the blood of my firstborn? No, he Mm -hmm. wants your your heart. Right. And then in Psalm 51, which is, you know, Solomon's father here, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Mm-hmm. So, like, I get it. There's a bunch of ceremonial stuff going on here. I didn't get the impression that these were sin sacrifices. I got the impression this was a dedication ceremony and they were providing for the people.
0: Yeah, the dedication ceremony I, I absolutely got. See, I was falling into my old ways of thinking, and I should know better by now, that I have to remember that when people would make these sacrifices, it's not like they kill an animal and the whole thing would go on the fire and get burned. The priest would get part of it to eat. It seemed like the people would get part of it to eat. It was just that this particular animal was somehow special. We're doing something a special thing with it, but we're not just wasting it. Oh right, so, For
2: sure.
0: So, so yeah, that was that's kind of my my little disconnect there of of uh, of forgetting that that things could be used. So. Absolutely makes sense that kind of, like you said, they sort of make it into a a ceremony, a celebration, a celebration, and then everybody is uh, kind of having part in this feast. Makes sense. So the Ark is brought into the tabernacle, and all the the old furnishings are brought into the tabernacle. And it specifically talks about how it's brought under the wings of the cherubim as it's brought into the most holy place. And I can kind of imagine the reverence that this would be taking place. And I wonder how many people are actually able to see it happen. And mm-hmm. what a thing, because if we remember those cherubim in the most holy place, they were, they were huge. And they had these big wingspans that would reach, uh, you know, one next to the other it would be wall to wall. And then the ark could be brought in underneath mm-hmm. those those wings. And I don't know, you know, it's just, it was just interesting because all of this was built. We talked about how this was built for God specifically, and not so much for anybody to see it, but um, but just this is, a, this is a very special place for the for the ark to be brought into.
1: Well, and and the mercy seat is where God's presence would rest. Mm-hmm. So, and and you know, I can just I can just imagine the entire nation and all of the builders and the priests sort of holding their breath as the you know, the ark was brought in and put in place and then the cloud comes down and fills the temple and it's like, oh, okay, we did it right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I mean, that that must have just been incredible.
0: Yeah. Now, this, this kind of stuck out to me. So we're told that there's nothing in the ark except for the two tablets of stone put there by Moses. So these would have been the tablets that um, the Ten Commandments were written on. At what point was Aaron's rod and um, yeah. the oh, manna? put in there well, Wasn't
2: that... yeah, but it was lost mm.
1: I didn't remember it was lost I thought that Not that either. was still in there
2: no because it points out in verse 9 that there is nothing in 1st in, uh, Kings 8 uh, verse 9 it says there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that yeah. Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel, and they came out of Egypt. So that's the only thing in there now. And we know that last we heard, anyways, in the desert, it contained the stones that God had written on, and a bowl of manna that was to be symbolic of God's provision, and the and Aaron's rod that had budded out. I think it was almonds, and that and that showed. That was during a controversy, is like, well, who gets to be priest? And God is like, Well, everybody bring your staff here right overnight, put them in the temple. We'll see what happens in the morning. Aaron's bought Aaron's dry stick, his walking stick, um, budded and flowered and bore fruit overnight. And so they put that in the ark and now they're gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And there was also gone. the
1: book of the law, but that wasn't in the ark. Right. That right. was that, in like a pocket on the side of the ark. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, I was I, I read that passage and I was like, well, where did the other stuff go? I didn't I didn't remember that that other stuff ever went away.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't remember being specifically told that it went away, but it's gone now. Yeah. Right. So.
2: Yeah. It's kind of like the ark itself. It's like, well, we've got all this stuff with the ark, and then it's gone.
0: Yeah, it was very interesting. But yeah.
2: So we talked about this cloud
0: that came down. Or Karen mentioned it here. This cloud that came down uh f when all this was happening. And we were told in uh this is in uh this is in first Kings eight ten. But uh at some point where did I write my notes about this? The the sacrifices being made at the time being accepted by God was by fire coming out of heaven. We haven't seen that happen in a while. Yeah. Where did I just read that? I wrote a note about it, but, um, oh, okay, this was in second chronicles seven verse one that we had fire come from out of heaven and and then all the people start singing this this song, for he is good for his mercy endures forever, but yeah, so not only a cloud but 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 we get that fire from heaven again that gosh, when was the first time we saw that happen when when um a
2: sacrifice was. Oh boy, this is back old. This First is back time liberal was probably uh, um, I want to say was it uh, when Abraham entertained um, guests? Hmm. You know, I hadn't thought back that far. And he brought out um, he brought out food for them, and um, fire came down and consumed him. That wasn't actually a Levitical priestly. Ceremony that was probably in the desert after they built the tabernacle, mm-hmm. but it's kind of mm-hmm. like, Well, when does this begin? It's like, Well, it's hard to say because we have Cain and Abel offering sacrifices, yeah, way back. Although we're not told that fire came down from heaven for those, right. Um, right? But yeah, it's kind of again, this is one of those themes that goes through the whole Bible. Um, but the literal in a temple with a sacrifice with God's presence. Showing up, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, I just thought that was
0: that was really cool that that this happened at this at this dedication ceremony. Okay. Let's talk about his sermon or his yeah, really yeah. So he starts talking about how he's he, he's got this speech that he gives, and he talks about how God has kept kept his promise ever since
2: he brought Israel out of Egypt. This is Solomon, and he's doing this in First Kings eight twenty two to sixty six. Mm -hmm. And 2 Chronicles 6, 12 to 42, they're essentially the same speech, but this is the king addressing everybody who's there, and it makes a point to say they built a little podium in the middle, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. he he does this whole speech, and it's really, really important, and I would encourage our listeners to read this. It's in 1 Kings 8 and in 2 Chronicles 6, what Solomon has to say, because essentially he is right here outlining... The future of the nation of Israel um, up until the Messiah, kind of their political. I don't know how much he knows. Did that strike you guys? Like, I mean, he's saying all this stuff, this if then, if then, if then. I highlighted all those. I wonder, does he even know how much of what he's saying is literally going to happen?
0: You know, it was to me, it was almost like he was being directed in his prayer. Mm hmm. You know, the the Holy Spirit maybe was kind of taking charge. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's yeah. straight up prophecy. This isn't just him giving advice. This is... <laughs> yeah. We see this happen in the future, literally, as he outlines it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, I think, I mean, did he know? I don't know that he knew, but I think, uh, I don't know. Haven't you ever... Sat down to pray, or you know, and you know you need to pray something, but you don't know what to pray, and so <laughs> it's kind of funny, but you say, okay, you, you pray to God to ask you to tell you what to pray, right, and it seems to be like that's sort of what's happened to Solomon here is that he has been essentially given this prayer and this uh and it works out as being rather prophetic, but he does talk about how there's no God like this God, and how he's kept his promises, and he's asking him to keep a descendant of David on the throne, but with the caveat, as long as those descendants are following your ways. Right. And this has been mentioned a few times before now by,
2: by God. And we can't miss that if, I mean, literally, if you went through this, which I did in, in both First Kings and Second Chronicles, and you highlight the words if and then, Mm-hmm. It, it's dozens of times it shows up He talks about how The vastness
0: of the universe he, Well he, re- he uses the word heaven uses, But uh, let's see This is in verse 27 But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens Cannot contain you How much less this temple which I have built yeah. Such an acknowledgement of, of how big God is And how what he's talking about is heaven cannot contain him. Now, this is something interesting to me too, and this might put us down a a rabbit hole and maybe we don't have time to go here right now. But I've been noticing as we read and we talk about heaven, we have a tendency to think of heaven as being like this place where God lives. But if you notice as you read through this, it's never really used as a proper noun. It's almost referring to heaven as more like the vastness of the universe. It's like, that's where God is. He's in the vastness of everything. It's not like he has this particular place that he lives because there's nothing that can contain him. It's he exists in that vastness.
1: I, I get what you're saying. And I think that that's true. There's the omnipotence and the omniscience aspect of it. But like in the New Testament, it refers to it as the the three heavens, Mm-hmm. So there's the fir- the first heaven being Earth's atmosphere, the second heaven being space mm-hmm. as 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 we know it and as we don't know it, and the third heaven being like, hey, Revelation, now we're going to heaven, second coming heaven, that heaven, right, a place where the throne room of God is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's that's kind of always been my understanding of it.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's just interesting how.
1: Because mm. if you think about the creation story in you know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right. right? So he made right. an atmosphere around the earth and he separated the sea from the land and then he planted stuff on the you know what i mean like it, that's mm-hmm. that's the first heaven.
2: Yeah. Well, there's lots of room to discuss that. There's yeah, there's like of so theories that- about all of these places and kind of what it boils down to is we're trying to figure out what this means and at the end of the day god is bigger than all of these things Mm -hmm. because he yeah whatever they are he created them it's he's Mm -hmm. bigger than the thing he created but to matt's point he's solomon is saying that as amazing as all this is you you can't really fit in here you know we built a house for you but it's kind of not really a house you can live in we're doing it to honor you right yeah, God is just—he's way—it's—he's
0: way too big, and it, it it's so Solomon's just sort of acknowledging that, you know, we've done this grand gesture, but it's really a, a pittance because there, there, there is there's no way that that this is uh, in any way the only place where you're going to be.
1: I appreciate what Solomon's saying, I, but the simple fact is God's already shown Himself. To accept this earthly tabernacle all the mm-hmm. way through when it was just a tent yeah. made made out of whatever kind of skins those turned out to be, the ones that we yeah. like, what animal is that from? I mean, he he already accepted it. And he, you know, if if humans make a space for him, he is he is uncontainable, but he is through through the plan of salvation and through Jesus' life and through his acceptance of the sacrificial system and his presence in the earthly tabernacle, he has shown over and over that he is perfectly willing to make himself small enough to fit into our lives Mm -hmm. in a way that we can relate to. I I think it's, I get what Solomon's saying, and it's true, and it's beautiful, but God has also shown himself perfectly willing to come down to our level.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, it was his idea.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Well, Solomon continues on, and he's asking God to Accept prayers that are directed Towards this temple so he's like when Somebody comes here and has sinned and they pray Or when When Israel has fallen To an enemy because we haven't followed You there's some of that foreshadowing You were talking about um, But when you know if we're If we're out of town and we direct Our prayers towards Jerusalem He's Asking God to accept The prayers that are directed in this in Direction and I think it's important that he pointed out that uh, that this is not big enough to contain God because this is showing how it's all really kind of a symbolic gesture. And he's asking God to, to accept those symbolic gestures of, of directing a prayer towards this temple.
2: Now that's a big deal mm-hmm. because it's over time, it shifted into being a literally like, okay, get out your compass, which direction is Jerusalem And and that became the significant thing. And I'm not saying it's insignificant because, you know, later we have Daniel who literally prays toward Jerusalem. And you can read that story in, in, uh, in Daniel. But as we get to the New Testament, here's something. It's Matthew 24, 2. This is Jesus saying, you see, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's been, re- it's been destroyed and rebuilt. This is the third rebuilding at this point. But Jesus is saying, you see all these, don't you? These stones? I say to you, there will not be here, left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They think, wow, this, this building, which by the way, Herod's temple was way bigger than Solomon's temple. Yeah. And in John two nineteen. Jesus again said, the Jews said to say to him, to Jesus, what sign do you show us that you're doing these things? Jesus said to them, destroy this temple. Yeah, we get into temple. You've you got to read this kind of stuff with an open mind. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about his body. That's what it says here. And so we get into this. Is it literally praying towards the geographical Jerusalem in that direction that's important? Or is it praying toward the God that this is supposed to represent? And when we get into the if-thens, and and Karen brought up this really, uh, it was Micah 6. And I, again, really recommend that our readers check it out is what is God really want? Does he really want us to just aim our face towards a particular degree on the compass and to take a particular physical posture? Or is he concerned with our hearts and where we are going? Because there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here with that.
1: Okay, hang on. I I don't think that the literal direction of the temple was the thing. I think that the thing, because he, he repeatedly says, you know, and then, um, let's see, where's an example? No, I'm not I
2: disagreeing with you, Karen. I'm saying not his intent, but what it became.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, we humans can idolize just about anything. But, but I think the fact that his presence was there, that the mercy seat was there, that the court of judgment and forgiveness was there, I think that was the thing. Like, you reach out your hands towards God's presence. And in, and in their case, it was here.
2: Right, and so to my point, uh, is where is that now? Do, right. do does it does is God going to say, "Well, you were kind of facing northeast when you prayed just then, and actually, I kind of needed you just a little bit more, you know, southeast because uh, it missed. You took a shot, but it missed because yes. we're named the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, went right
0: over the bow. <laughs> yeah, uh, one neat thing that I thought here not only talking about when the Israelites would pray, but he's talking about when the foreigners would come to pray. Right. You know, um, there, there's sort of this concept out there that God really only ever did anything for the Jewish people, for the Israelite people. And like, we, we you hear about the Jewish God, and then later you hear about the Christian God. And I think we've all held here quite a bit that, no, that's all one, it's all one God. But even back then... This was open for anybody to come to God, yeah. anyone at all, not not just uh, this particular group of people who lived in this one particular geographical location. But now they have sort of a focal point for people to come to and offer their their honor, their uh, their dedication. But uh, but yeah, it was for it was for this is for anybody to come to 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 this place and participate in worship.
2: So much. I mean, I just, the couple things that I've got highlighted, the, the, um, First Kings 8, 47, this is, mm-hmm. this is again, more teaching, is if they turn with all their heart, to the land they've been, carried. this is, I mean, he's prophesying like, "Oh, well, you're going to get carried away as captives, because you rejected God, uh, but when you turn with all your heart, and all your mind, and with all your heart, and I think this gets to what we've been discussing here, is that it's, it's not really the geography so much, is it's your heart? And are you really turning back? Because he wants this. I mean, the whole thing just goes on and on about how God is really wanting his people, and to Matt's point, anybody who turns to him to be accepted. You know, there's And he he gives context to that. It's like, no, you have the assurance that this will happen because in verse 56, Solomon says this, not one word has failed of all his good promise. So he goes on, he talks about how these are his, I mean,
0: these are God's people and God has chosen these people and he's separated them out. He talks about how these are God's inheritance, but he's chosen them. That's, I I think that's a big deal to consider for us all. That God has chosen us. You know, if you, if you find yourself in the graces of God, it's because he's chosen you. And, I, I mean, he's put his hand out to everyone. So, I mean, we have to choose him back.
1: But well, didn't that... he say, weren't there a couple times when, like, earlier in the Bible when he's talking about the Israelites, and he says, like, I've chosen you, you're my people, mm-hmm. but don't yeah. get conceited. I didn't choose you because of who you are.
3: Right. I chose you because right. of who I am. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. And it always falls back on that if and when, like we've been talking about, and they have to keep their their focus on him, or it all goes away. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 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 sitting here I'm sitting here listening to all this, and I'm thinking that it's there's a psalm that David wrote sixty Psalm sixty something I don't know mid sixties runs in my mind, and he says, "If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me." Right. And that's, that to me is the clearest statement of the, the truth of worship. Like if you come for forgiveness, if you come for communion, you know, communion with God, if you come to worship God, like that internal state of your heart is the thing that makes it. It's mm-hmm. not what direction you're facing or if you do the ritual right or what position you put your hands in or whether you, you know, for these people, whether you brought a sacrifice, you know, a sin, a sin, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not that, like it is all, all of it is your heart. And in the, the way that Jesus states summarizes the, the 10 commandments in the new Testament, he says, you know, love. there are two commandments. The, the first and greatest commandment is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law. You know, you want to know what the heart of everything is. That's what it is. It's love. Love going mm-hmm. upward and love going outward.
0: Yep, that's right. Solomon goes on. He talks about he again, he mentions how God has kept all of his promises and he's given rest to his people. And he talks about how the people, It says, we keep his, well, this is, my, this is my interpretation. We keep his ways because he has chosen us and we're able to keep his commandments because of his attention to us. And all of this is so that all of the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. D- being in the lo- geographical location they were, they were kind of at a crossroads to everything. And for everybody to be able to see this place as this this central like a focal point for this particular faith and pressing this idea that God is the only God, that there is no other God, I think that's probably a pretty big deal for that time in that era, in that area. You know, spreading this concept of this one of this one God. I can think of times in the past when when the Israelites would go up against other kings, and the kings would be kind of like, "Well, let's see whose God is better, you know, but um, there was always kind of held to the point that there's only one, and uh, there's really no point in trying to try to say otherwise. First Kings Eight continues, we have more sacrifices, wow, a lot of sacrifices, twenty two thousand bulls and twenty thousand sheep. And this is this is there's so many burnt offerings made at this point where they do it in the court in front of the tabernacle because the altar, as big as this altar is, it's too small to take all these sacrifices. That's a lot of sacrifices. But then we're told about this 14 day long feast going on. So uh, I think it's I think it's safe to assume, like we've talked about before, that these aren't just animals getting slaughtered and burned on a fire, but this is, this is uh, all part of this, all part of this dedication ceremony. And everybody's able to take, take part in this and celebrate with the feast of it.
2: Yeah. I remember that uh, towards, I think the number when David did his, um, his census of potential uh, warriors, he'd come up with over, over a million fighting age men. That's just in a certain age group. With the capacity to to fight, so if you multiply that by whatever factor you want to, so I think sometimes we have in our head that this ancient Israel was like ah, it was probably you know five, four, five, six thousand people. There were millions of people,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and yeah. so this would not have gone to waste. I mean, they were an agrarian people, and I think as Karen mentioned, this was a celebration. People probably came and went. Through this, um, as we've seen earlier in the Old Testament, families were to come and they would offer it. Priests would get some, some would get burned, and they would eat the rest. So we had a lot going on here, and it, did, it does say that there was, there were, um, sol- there were, one day was held as a solemn ceremony. That's in 2 Chronicles 7, um, 8, you know, 9. So they, they did a lot of celebration, and then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly and then they had another feast and so there was a lot going on through this whole thing and we have Solomon speaking apparently it's broken out in the text it could be more than one time could have been just one time I wasn't clear on that I don't know about you guys but like we in in chronicles there's Solomon giving his um his amazing speech which you should just read it yourselves, guys. It's really good. It is. And then we have fire from heaven come down, which we've talked about, and there's dedication of the temple, all these sacrifices. And then Solomon in um Second Chronicles 7 has again it's more of this prophecy. Uh Solomon's praying. He essentially he's speaking for God here. He says when I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, we're going to see that. It's coming right up. Or command the locust to devour the land. We see that coming up. Or send pestilence among the people. That happens too. Here's the, here's the nugget. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land
0: we're told that God appears to Solomon again a second time. He's done once before. I uh, came to Solomon in a dream and we're told that yeah, this happens again. And he assures Solomon, says, basically, I've heard you and I've consecrated the house that you built for me. And interesting, in Second Chronicles 7, he says, I've chosen and sanctified this house. That's kind of an interesting uh, way for that to go, because... You know, Solomon built it, and basically, you know, places it out there. But then God's like, yeah, I chose this. Mm-hmm. this. So that was that was kind of an interesting little way of, of looking at all this. Uh, he reminds him, if you walk before me, maintain integrity, keep my commandments, my statutes, my judgments, then your throne will be established forever. God keeps coming back to this thing. If If you will do the things I say. Then your legacy is going to go on and on, uh, but if you or your descendants turn away from me, then I will cut off Israel and cast this temple out of my sight,"
3: he says. So all of the all the uh, the grandeur and the just how it looks, the whole thing. God says, "You know what? You don't follow me. It it means almost nothing." Mm-hmm. Yeah thing just like Karen said a a little while ago the most important thing is your heart and that you're following me not this temple and it looks grand but don't get caught up in it Mm -hmm. because that's the most important thing
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean what was it one of the one of the Samuels I think it was first Samuel Says it just says flat out to obey is better than sacrifice
0: yeah all this grandeur all of this wealth put into this all of this work I mean think of the man hours the man Shoot, man, years probably put into building this thing. And yeah, God is like, Yeah, this is great. It's cool. I uh I acknowledge it. I, I I I choose this to be, you know, what we're talking about here. Um, but if you don't follow me, it's nothing, it's gone. It it'll be it'll be gone. And when people see it that it's gone, they're gonna know that that Israel fell away from
2: me. Yep, it becomes basically like in our culture now, when somebody says, "Oh yeah, that business operated and pretty much went like the way of the Titanic," it's not mm. a compliment.
0: <laughs> so, right. No. It's
2: like it was supposed to be amazing and awesome, but then look what happened. Mm-hmm. And that's God is warning them. Hey, this all this awesomeness that you're seeing and you're excited about it, it could just go that way. Keep it in mind.
0: Well, Solomon. I guess feels uh, some gratitude towards Hiram, and decides he's going to give him a gift. <laughs> this is after 20, 20 years of building projects, <laughs> and Solomon gives Hiram twenty cities in Galilee. <laughs> uh, I mean, twenty—you're thinking twenty cities? He's given to give him twenty cities. Also, wow. Hiram
1: didn't work for free. Like Hiram hadn't yeah. worked for free for two decades.
0: <laughs> well, you were giving basically they were supplying food, though. Let's not forget that. Wow. Yeah, right. Yeah, but then Hiram looks at them and he's like, "What is this?"
2: Right. It's funny. <laughs> it's
0: sort of a humorous. It's sort of a humorous little story here. But he's like, he's like,
2: "What? What? What? what why?" <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You read the biblical text. It's Hiram's like, dude. Seriously? Like this is what you're giving me? And Solomon's like, "Okay, okay, 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 okay. How about this deal?" <laughs> but,
0: he, but he gives them he gives them these 20 cities and he calls them Kabul, which literally means good for nothing. <laughs> oh, I mean, I you know, I guess I've gotten a couple of gifts in my time and you and you, you know, you put on a smile. And, Thanks. <laughs> That's oh, thoughtful. It's great. It's no. Not, it's the thought that counts. Yeah. No, really. That's, thanks. You didn't have to. (laughs) Yeah, you shouldn't have.
1: (laughs) Have You guys ever seen the little video online of the little boy who um, gets an avocado for a present? Yeah. And he doesn't realize it's supposed to be a joke and he's trying so hard to be grateful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hiram could have worked a little harder to be the little boy with the avocado. And instead he's looking his gift horse in the mouth going, "Mm, this isn't a great gift.
0: Yeah. What is this junk? (laughs) well Hiram turns around and gives Solomon 120 talents of gold
1: oh my goodness yes
0: so I mean I didn't do the math on that but that sounds like a lot of gold (laughs) sounds like maybe maybe Hiram was uh one-upping Solomon a little bit there um just yeah just funny I don't know it's like why on the one hand I'm like why did Solomon think he would like this and on the other hand yeah it's like uh Way to way to way, way to uh, bury bury your disappointment there, Hiram.
1: <laughs>
2: so so my Bible has
1: a footnote that says that that is about four and a half tons of
2: gold. So where oh, was man. that? Where was that little exchange here? I'm trying to find that.
0: Oh, that was in oh, that is on Kings thir- nine thir- thirteen nine
2: thirteen.
3: Th-
0: yeah, nine. Yeah, ten to ten through thirteen fourteen. Solomon and Hiram exchange gifts right there in the middle of chapter nine. First Kings. Yeah. There's there's first Kings. Yeah. So just a, I don't know. Funny. I don't know. It it just, it just kind of cracked me up. Yes. But, uh,
3: so
0: yeah, it's funny too, because Solomon's supposed to be the wisest guy who ever lived and, uh, apparently not a good gift giver. I don't know. I don't know.
1: (laughs) With all those wives, how could he not be a good gift giver?
0: I don't don't know. (laughs) Because we all know that that you have to buy a woman's love, so. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> hey. I got the reaction I wanted out of that. That's Be good. good. <laughs> well, okay. So First Kings chapter nine continues with um, some of Solomon's other accomplishments. It talks about this huge labor force that he had wrote, rose, risen, built. Grammar guys, um, but he was building the temple. He was building the king's house. He was building what's called the Millow, which literally means landfill. It's a weird weird word for landfill. He was started with building the wall of Jerusalem. Uh he was building the town or cities of Hazor, Megiddo, uh Gazer. Lots of building. And so he had to have a lot of people to do it. And it was a little side note there that the Gazer was a gift from Pharaoh uh to his daughter.
1: After it had been wrecked.
0: Yeah. <laughs> He attacks
1: yeah. it and wrecks it, and then is like, "Here, I got you something." <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> these guys just don't know how to give gifts, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but apparently Solomon makes something of it. Uh, he's building Lower Beth Haran, Baalath, Tadmor, uh, just all kinds of stuff. Uh, talks about how he's building storage cities. This was interesting to me. The concept of storage cities. For chariots and cavalry, like cities, just for that's that's their purpose is to store just, the stuff
3: it made me go back and think is of exactly what we're saying this is what he was meant to do. He was meant to build this whole infrastructure of of Israel, basically, none of this has been ever thought of before this because they were David was always at war mm-hmm, and this was what he needed to do to help kind of. Build this this um, foundation and infrastructure for a country, which which towards the end was kind of near and dear to my heart. But a fleet of ships, and we haven't heard of fleet of ships from anybody.
0: Mm-mm. Not not from Israel for sure. I think there were some other
3: from from like well,
0: way back when the individual uh, sons of Israel were being blessed. Wasn't there one? That was specifically told that they were going to live by the coast and build build boats. I'd have to go back and look at that, but certainly we haven't heard of anything like a navy at, 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 yeah. until now. Yeah, we're told that that he pressed that's that uh, Solomon pressed into forced labor. I guess we can use the word slaves, but all the leftover people of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites put them into forced labor. So this is everybody that didn't get pushed out. If they were living still living in the area now, they're they're being made to work. I guess I guess there could be we could talk about the morality in that. I don't know. We'd have to uh that would that would open a can of worms, but uh it is what it is, it's what happened. But there was no there was no pressed labor from any of the Israelites. The Israelites, if they were working I mean, I, I would assume either they were getting paid, but we're told about how there were specifically some who were overseeing All of the workers.
2: Yeah, this happens at this point, but we we get the idea as things progress here in time that a little bit wasn't enough, and it turns into more and more and more of of just everything. And we see that this starts this falls apart here, and not it doesn't take a hundred years.
3: But if we look back when Samuel was talking to Saul or even the delegates before they were going to choose Saul he told them this yes he was specific in saying this you want a king but you need to remember there's going to come a time where he's going to require a lot from you yep. and you're going to you're going to cry out about it and remember this is what you wanted and it's right around the corner
0: uh, we're told about how Solomon would make—he th- uh, would make burnt offerings three times a year. So that's in First Kings. But then, if you get into uh, Second Chronicles, that is specified as being the Feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles. So we're seeing—we're seeing that Solomon's kingdom is established. We're seeing that he's had this huge building project going on. Oh, and the navy that. Tracy mentioned sorry to blow off the navy there Tracy didn't mean to hey <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: but uh, yeah they build a fleet of ships Solomon builds a fleet of ships and they get manned by Hiram's men which is interesting that yeah. uh, we got you know we've got it sounds like sort of this joint sort of almost like a joint force here is
2: a capital venture
0: yeah yeah, and I guess this isn't necessarily military. This is because uh, what they do is they go, they go, and somehow it doesn't say exactly how, but they go and they get four hundred and twenty talents of gold from Ophir, and so we've got Hiram's men who know how to how to man the boats, and and we've got Solomon's men who are able to build the boats, and so they they get together and they they go and they gather all this all this gold.
1: Yeah, like, but, who is this Hiram guy? Like, I thought they brought him in because he knew how to work bronze, and now it turns out he's got a fleet of ships and a bunch of guys that know the sea. Who is he, this guy?
2: There's two Hirams. There's one who's the king of Tyre, and then there's another guy who is apparently has, shares the same name.
1: Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. I forgot yeah. the king of Tyre's name was the same. No wonder they called him Hiram or whatever his other name was. Yeah. The guy who's not the king.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. So, anyway, we're seeing all this prosperity In this time of Solomon And you don't get this kind of prosperity Like we've said if you're at war all the time I mean I guess You know sometimes war can Spur on an economy but that's uh, That's already happened at this point We've We've already had All the fighting in David's time And now we've got prosperity in Solomon's Time and it's given him a chance To do all of this building And really making something out of Israel Now making it something really something Spectacular to see
1: now there's nothing left for him to do but collect a bunch of women.
0: Apparently, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, in the future, going forward, we're going to be looking more into into what what he thinks of all that. I guess. Any final thoughts on this week's reading?
2: Well, I, I guess this, one of the things that struck me as I was reading through this was the the if then's we we often want the the um, we want the blessings of the if but we don't necessarily want to do the the things that qualify us to do that it's just human nature you know uh, and i mean this this is spiritual here we want to do this but my wife was had an exchange with somebody this last week who said well i really want to invest in you know in this area but i don't want to spend any time learning anything about it i just want to make the money mm-hmm. It's like, that's just how all of us are. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want the paycheck. We don't want the work. We want the blessings of God, but we don't want to actually figure out who he is and what he wants and what he would want to do for us. You know, we, we want all these things. And you can't read the reading that we did this last week without just, I mean, it is in, in our face again and, again and again and again and again. If, then, if, then. If you do this, then. The, and there's, there's if, then, and good, and there's if, then, bad. Yeah. If right. you do these things here, it can go super well for you. So there is a there's a there's a promise built in that. And there's also a promise, if you will, built in if you do this other stuff, then this other stuff's gonna happen. I was listening to a podcast this week. It's interesting, the hosts were saying, you know, success or failure, neither one of those should actually be a surprise. Yes, occasionally, the asteroid comes from outer space and blasts apart the thing you were working on. That's pretty rare, really. But you know, everything from our health to our finances to, in this case, the spiritual health of a of a of a uh, kingdom, it's not as God is saying, guys. This is not a surprise. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Good. If you do this. And you're doing the wrong thing, it's going to go bad. And yet we so stubbornly refuse. Don't, we don't want to believe that that's how things work. We just want the blessings without the, without the obedience. And we see this, man. I mean, we, we'll see it quite literally here as we start getting into the changeover in kingdoms, which starts to happen pretty rapidly. Rapidly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we see this in in Jesus is constantly addressing this to his audience in the New Testament. It's like, look, like you wanted this, you wanted these blessings, you you claim this, this heritage of Abraham. That's not what it's about. It's, it's about, you know, you got to produce fruit. You can't just say, I'm a fruit tree. It's like, well, show me the fruit. And we see that pattern play out again and again and again in the New Testament. and It is, it's not even foreshadowed. It is literally spelled out here in Solomon's um, prayer of dedication. And I don't think we should miss it. You know, but it's hard not
3: to, once again, they're, they're continue to be given all these warnings, even from the Exodus, and they, they don't heed them at all. And when we start to see the, the rapid turnover in their, in their kings and their leadership, it's like, it's it's being told to them literally every time they start their job. And you know, some of them heed the warning and and do well, but it's only for a few years, and then they revert back to their destruction.
2: Yep.
3: It's like, okay. You know, maybe hindsight is 2020 20, and reading it is you could sit back and go, ooh, bad choice, but it's like they they were just given so many warnings. Yeah, things do not
0: stay. Happy hunky-dory forever in the land of Israel. Uh, Now, we're not, I don't think we're done quite hearing about good things that happened for Solomon, but it does definitely start to change. And we're going to see that coming up, because next week we are going to get into the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at chapters 1 through 6 of Ecclesiastes, and then then the following week we're going to read, I think it is 7 through 12. Yeah. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking in the in Ecclesiastes, and that is a very different book.
1: Yes, I love Ecclesiastes.
0: <laughs> well, you would.
1: <laughs> it's kind of a it's, depressing. Oh, it's right up there with James for being like my favorite books in the Bible. James mm. is my, al- always my number one. I love the Book of James, but Ecclesiastes is right up there.
0: Well, and Karen's going to have a whole lot to say about the Book of Ecclesiastes next week. We'll let we'll let Karen host.
2: There you go, Karen. You go. I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> I think I'm going to be sick that week. Uh,
1: is funny. that it? Are we just reading those chapters?
0: Oh, well, I think six chapters is probably pretty good. I mean, we could do the whole book okay. if you want, but.
1: Oh, no, but no, no, yeah. I didn't do that. Sometimes <laughs> it has been pieces parts of this book and that book. And
0: Yeah. No, for next two weeks, we're going to read the whole, I think it's, I think it's the whole book of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? But, uh, so we're going to do one through six next week, and then we'll do seven through 12 the following week. In the meantime, while you're waiting for that, you can reach us at podcast at theadventure.org. Make sure to reach out to us at Facebook. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors. And make sure you subscribe so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.